Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. You have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. As the pastor stepped into the pulpit that Sunday morning, he had wired all the pews with electricity. One Sunday from the pulpit, he said, all who will give $100 to finish the gym, stand up. He pushed the button. 20 people stood up, and he said, fine, that's excellent. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Now all who will give 500 to finish the gym, stand up. He pushed another button. 20 more jumped to their feet in excitement. Excellent. Now all who will give 1,000, stand up. And at that, he threw the master switch and electrocuted 14 deacons. I told those guys that was coming. Stewardship. It is defined by the Holman Bible Dictionary as the responsibility to manage all the resources of life for the glory of God, acknowledging God as provider. As we continue to work through Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we come to the verse Verse 45, where Luke wrote, in summary of the church, they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. We have already looked at how they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and how we too must be devoted to the word of God, just as our choir reminded us a few moments ago. We also saw how the early church was devoted to fellowship, koinonia, where fellowship isn't just about punching cookies, but rather leads us to mutually share in the life of Christ and in the life of the church. We also saw last week how the church was wired for worship. It's not just about singing, but also about prayer and the breaking of bread with one another. Today we look at this practice of stewardship, giving as any had need. I don't know if you'll remember back in February of 2014, but you might remember the event. Uh, The floor of the National Corvette Museum fell in, fell into a sinkhole, and eight beautifully maintained, one-of-a-kind classic Corvettes fell into that massive sinkhole, a sad moment for Corvette enthusiasts. A costly reminder for certain, but also a reminder that many of us have sinkholes in our life where we've wasted the goodness of the Lord and what he has provided for us. On some level, the early church grasped what stewardship was and what the Old Testament had called them to. It wasn't about a particular percentage as much as it was about their heart. And 
They began to grasp the eternal significance and the eternal impact that they could have as they grew in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Stewardship that endures recognizes that God gives out of his gracious and marvelous grace exactly what the church needs for this life so that we can make his name known to the nations. If you would please stand as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 from the Apostle Paul, the servant of Christ, to the church in Corinth as he wrote to them about being a faithful manager and steward. Paul wrote, a person should not think of us in this way. As, excuse me, a person should think of us in this way as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are our provider. We praise you alone for being good and the gracious creator and owner of all things. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded today and convinced of this truth, that we are called to be faithful stewards of your provision for your purposes, for your glory. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, provide us. And what we are not, make us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. One of the responses that we see to the gospel preached in Acts chapter 2 on that day of Pentecost is that the church is generous. Taking on the role of being a good steward of all that God had provided for them. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 45, as I read a moment ago, we see the church engaging in commerce, commerce of some sort, selling their possessions and property, then distributing those proceeds as any had need. As any need came up, that's what they did. They didn't sell everything. They didn't go live in a commune, because just after that, we see them meeting in homes. If they sold their homes, they wouldn't have homes to meet in. So it's not that kind of, uh, of uh, commune that they're gathering in. But they do sell what they have, when they have it. So based on that, the fact that the early church was doing this, I want to take a few moments and share some foundational thoughts on stewardship and what that looks like for the church a stewardship that endures. I first to let you know that stewardship that endures begins with an enduring relationship with Jesus Christ. As Jesus comes into your life, we are called to be stewards of that very gift of the gospel. If we fail at being stewards of the gospel, we fail. That's our one calling in life, is to be good stewards of the gospel. In Acts chapter two, we see these believers selling their possessions reaching the needs of the church. But we also see from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul's take on his role. We're to think of Paul and the church as servants and stewards or managers. 
Not exactly how we might see Paul. We would, I mean, I would argue Paul belongs in the Hall of Fame in heaven, as you might as well. I mean, he's got 13 books of the New Testament to his name. Much of our theology is based on his writing. He had such a profound impact on the, on the Gentile churches as their missionary, as their, the one sent to reach them with the gospel. But Paul doesn't see himself that way. Paul doesn't see himself as a giant of the faith. He sees himself as a servant of Christ. In fact, he would write the Philippian church that they ought to conduct themselves with the humility of Christ as Paul would conduct himself in that manner. Several of his letters, in fact, Paul will say and introduce himself as Paul, a servant of Christ. Others will say Paul, an apostle of Christ, where he needs to kind of throw that weight into his letter. But oftentimes you'll see Paul as a servant. That word for servant in the scripture in the New Testament is used as a domestic servant, which is a person who served their master in a variety of ways, but would always have in mind that their service exalted the one they served. And so Paul, as a servant of Christ, sees himself as exalting Christ because he's serving Christ. For Paul, it began on the road to Damascus, which we'll get there in in time in Acts chapter 9. But as you read Paul's letters, you'll hear his heart for service in Christ. And that is because he sees himself as needing to be a servant or steward of the gospel. Paul as a manager or as a steward means that he was entrusted with the oversight of the resources God had given him, just like a steward in the home was. The steward in the home was given resources, given oversight over that home, over those resources for the one who owned the home. As Paul, being a manager or a steward of the gospel of of God's grace, he managed those resources, the gospel, for the rest of his life, for the glory of God, acknowledging always God as his provider. Paul calls us to first manage or steward the gospel. We have the same responsibility today that the apostle Paul had, that the early church had. The requirement... Paul says, is to be found faithful, to be found trustworthy, to be found trustworthy with the mysteries entrusted to them. If you have called on the name of the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord, he has implanted that treasure in your heart, and you are called to be a faithful steward of that treasure. Now, for Paul, we find that his relationship with Jesus was one of deep conviction, It radically changed the direction of Paul's life. Again, in his letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, in fact, he writes about the only thing that really mattered to him was to know Christ and to know him more intimately than he had already known him, to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. But he wanted to know more of Christ. He was committed to Jesus He was committed as a faithful steward, and he wanted to know more intimately the fellowship of the suffering of Jesus. Now, just like last week, we don't always pray, Lord, ruin me when I go to worship today. We also don't go pray, Lord, I want to know more of the suffering of Jesus. It goes against our 
sinful heart. We want the blessings. We want the good things. But for Paul, it was the exact opposite. He wanted to know more of the suffering of Jesus. And what Paul discovered is what we discover or what we need to discover is that Jesus first came into fellowship with our suffering as he suffered death on the cross for us in our place. And now, by the grace of God, Jesus having been raised from the dead, he invites us into that trusting relationship with him. This is what Paul means by being a steward of his purpose. It's to trust in Jesus and to share that gospel with others. That is what being a good steward of the gospel is. It doesn't mean we're beating on doors and knocking people upside the head with a Bible, but it means in our daily relationships and the people that we know, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, that we are being good stewards, always investing the gospel in other people. So the first provision that we have to steward is not money, but it's the gospel. Paul was a steward of the mysteries of God. How are you stewarding the gospel? How is it that God has you using and putting to work, investing the greatest treasure ever given to mankind? Let that stir in your heart this morning. Another level of stewardship that we look at in Scripture is to understand that the stewardship that endures has a clear understanding that everything belongs to God. Everything. We look around, we see that everything belongs to God. In Psalm chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, we read this. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he has laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Have you ever seen a two-year-old at their birthday party, when it clicks, it's all about them. The cake, mine. The presents, mine. Have you ever seen a little boy who will slam his door and refuse to play with his cousins or, or his siblings? And the reason he gives is because I don't want them playing with my toys. They're mine. Or a set of twins who can distinguish between blankies. This one's mine. And if one of them's just being a bully, they may take the other one and say, that one's mine too. Mine. Ownership. I was reminded of the movie Finding Nemo when Dory and Nemo's dad, whose name escapes my mind, they're so close to Finding Nemo and there's a pelican trying to help them. He's like, just, you know, just, I know exactly where he is. I, I know. Trust me. Trust me. And, and in the moment, there are these seagulls. I mean, who doesn't love seagulls? <clears throat> but they come around and they see Dory and Nemo's father sitting there. They're out of the water. They're, they're, they're struggling to breathe. And, and all the seagulls can concentrate on is the food they see before them. And they all say what? Have you seen the movie? They say, mine, 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 you we sound like them. Ownership. It's mine. Yet it's flawed when we don't see, according to Psalm 24, 
that it's really not. It's God's. You see, in the beginning, God set Adam in that garden to work it, to take care of it, to be a steward of God's creation. The, uh, the garden didn't belong to Adam. It didn't belong to Eve. It belonged to God. We tend, though, to have a sinful understanding of ownership and the little kingdoms that we try to build, especially in the context of the American dream. In Daniel chapter 4, there's a story about King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, he made some mistakes. He made some idols of himself and ordered folks to worship him. But in this particular story, in Daniel chapter 4, he'd had a dream. And Daniel was the one that would interpret the dream for him. Daniel would tell him that you're going to, you're going to see for a period of time a, a great expansion of your kingdom, and it's going, to, it's, going to be, it's going to be fabulous. But Daniel warned him. Nebuchadnezzar didn't listen to the warning. And this is what happens. Verse 28 of Daniel chapter 4. At the end of 12 months, this time of prosperity for Nebuchadnezzar, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And the king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the great that I have built to a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. You will be driven away from people to live in the wild to live with the wild animals and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time until you acknowledge that the most high is ruler over human kingdoms and that he gives them to anyone he wants guess what nebuchadnezzar did he left babylon he went out into the wild and he ate grass like a cow and it says Verse 33, his body was drenched with dew from the sky. It must have been like the Texas coast until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. And then I praised the most high and honored him and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The thinking that all that we have is ours, that we own it, when God has repeatedly made it clear that it's his and that we are only stewards can re reveals the sinful nature in us, which is why we need the gospel, which is why we need his grace and his mercy. Paul would write to the Corinthian church this very verse and remind them the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it when he's writing to them about stewardship. Whatever the perception that we might hold that informs us that, we have, that what we have is mine, it's flawed. It's like looking into a mirror that is broken. Our homes, our jobs, parents, that child is not yours. He or she belongs to the Lord. It's all on loan from God. 
And he is the everlasting God who gives everlasting life by the giving of Jesus Christ, his only son. So no matter how loud we might scream, mine, or we might fight for what is mine, it's still his. Stewardship that endures is also tested by how you manage what God has entrusted you with. When I say tested, I mean stressed like a, like a muscle that's being exercised. It's stressed that when you lift something heavy, it builds muscle, builds strength, it builds endurance. Jesus gave us that standard for managing or stewarding when he said this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's your treasure? What is it that you hold dear? Because that's where your heart is. And I dare even say that's probably where your idol is. We might have heard this or we might try to twist that and say uh, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. But that's not how Jesus said it. He put the treasure first. There you'll find your heart. Wherever that treasure is located, you'll find that what you're worshiping. Where's your devotion? Whereabouts is your affection? Where is your trust? Your identity is determined by that. If you ignore God like Nebuchadnezzar, it's revealed. If you spend all your emotional and physical energy, your mind, your thoughts, all of that on the world's goods and earthly success, that is your God. Or you should trust, rather, God and focus your treasure on kingdom matters. Kingdom matters. In these trying times, our hearts are tested. Our hearts will continue to be tested and stressed. And that stress is going to reveal where your trust is. Put your trust in God. Put your trust in the one who has given you everything that you have. And that calls you to steward those resources and manage those resources. How can we know today the depth of our trust in him? What are the things? I think there's three tests in scripture that show us. The first one is tithing. Oh, he went there. Yes, I did. Actually, that's the second one. The first one is what are you stewarding? How are you stewarding the gospel? The second one is tithing. 10%. Oh, but I think, beloved, the New Testament doesn't give us a percentage necessarily. I think Jesus, because he gets on the Pharisees and the Pharisees are given 10%. For the Pharisees, it's not about the percentage, it's about the heart, and I think that's what it is for us today still. Every one of us is a tither. Our first 10% goes somewhere. God wrote Malachi, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? And he says, how? How are we robbing you? Because they're not giving a tenth. Giving a tenth or giving a tithe to something or someone other than God, God says is robbing God, and he invites us to test his generosity. We're not testing him because he needs practice or he needs refining. Rather, we're, we're testing. And in that, he is going to show and prove one more time his faithfulness as a response to the faith that we put in him. Ultimately, that faithfulness has been answered at the cross. We don't really need to test him in this anymore because he's already shown himself to be dependable. 
He's already proven himself time and time and time again that he is faithful. This is the only time where God would permit that in Scripture in Malachi chapter 3. But listen, that first 10% for us goes somewhere. It goes to the boat. It goes to your investment. It goes to your swimming pools, our cars, maybe the deer lease, maybe season tickets to your favorite college team. That, I shouldn't raise my hand. I've never had those. For most Americans, it goes to credit card debt. It goes somewhere. Where is your treasure? How are you investing in kingdom matters? Now, in a typical church, I, don't, I haven't looked at our numbers to see who gives what. I'm not gonna, I don't care who gives what. But in a typical church, anywhere from 10 to 25% of those families in attendance give as much support or to support 50 to 80% of the budget. So 10 to 25% give enough to support anywhere from 50 to 80% of the budget. Next Sunday, I think it's next Sunday, we'll have our business meeting and we're gonna vote on our church budget. Those things are important. If you vote yes, you're voting to give to support the church. Don't vote yes and then not support the ministry of the church. But let me also remind you and tell you the story of what is given and how it goes to kingdom work. What you give on the Sunday in the compassion jar when it's out, it goes to support people in this church family who are in need. I've seen it happen several times. Our deacons are good, faithful stewards over what comes into that compassion jar. They help as, as the need arises. It's, it's, it's Acts chapter two, verse 45 in, in living color. I love that about you. There are other ways that as you give on Sunday, our church is elected to, to cooperate with the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, which means we send a, a percentage on to, uh, to our state headquarters. And there they break that up into supporting ministries all across Texas, church planters, church revitalization, training in evangelism, training in missions, training in discipleship. They just held yesterday a, a statewide training called the Equip Conference. In February, they'll have another called the Empower Conference where we'll train and, and, and think about and pray for evangelism in our state. From, from the state level, it goes on to the national level, to the Southern Baptist Convention, where that fund, those funds go to support uh, six seminaries all across the country. I am a product of those six seminaries. Twice, I have been a beneficiary of the, the cooperative program that paid half of my tuition to Southwestern and Midwestern. You when you give, help support the training of the next generation of pastors, the next generation of missionaries, the next generation of children's ministers and youth ministers and worship pastors. You have a part to play in that. I don't know. I'm sure you, you understand that. Maybe you didn't. Maybe that's brand new to you. But also, there's a portion that goes on to the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board. Both of those train, again, church planters to plant new uh, churches in areas of our country where there is no church, where the people are unreached with the gospel. You have a part to play with that every time you give. Just this morning in the first service, we saw three lives changed because you give. In a few moments, we're going to see two more lives that were changed because you give. 
Because you give, we have a youth pastor that teaches and disciples our students. Because you give, we have a children's minister that, that teaches and loves and disciples our children. And we see the benefits of that. We see the fruit of that. Okay? This is, this is all a part of why we give, to support the ministry of the church. Beyond tithing, we also have the test of faithfulness. Think of the parable of the talents. When, when two of the three put to work what, God, what the master had put, given to them and invested in them, they invested and put back to work. Faithfulness is a question of trust. Do you trust God? Do you trust the master to give that first percentage to the Lord? Or better yet, to give sacrificially with a cheerful heart? The first two servants did. The last servant did not. The last servant sought to serve himself and protect himself from the master's harshness, which he didn't really even know his master to begin with. The third test is generosity. Generosity is godly. It is a godly trait. God is generous, and we also should be generous. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul wrote, trying to encourage the Corinthian church to be generous like the little church of Macedonia was. If God blesses us and as he blesses us, we in turn can be generous. I know this church benefited from the generosity of churches around this area back when Harvey struck. You've experienced that and we too must be generous as a church. You were generous with your community during that time. We understand generosity, but yet we must live generosity when it comes to stewardship. Because when we are good stewards, it means that that stewardship that endures is a witness of God's faithfulness. We testify to the world. God uses that to testify to the world of his faithfulness. In 2 Kings chapter 4, there's a story about the prophet Elisha. And there's a certain widow who owed a great debt, so great she could not pay it. And she was desperate because her two boys were going to be taken into slavery so that the debt could be paid. In other words, she had more month than she had money. And Elisha spoke to her and told her to collect as many jars as she could. She had just a little bit of oil to begin with, but collect just as many jars as you can from your neighbors. And as long as you have jars, the oil she had would continue to be poured out. And at the end, she has enough oil to pay her debt and then some. Friends, God is generous. God is faithful. And when we follow and we trust him and we live as good stewards of his grace and his mercy and his provision, his faithfulness is displayed to the world. You cannot outgive God. We've tried, but we cannot. So just take it. We cannot outgive him. We can't outmission him. We can't outgospel him. And we can't outgive him. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or what you're going to wear. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It's not for kingdom building. It's not for wealth building in our own bank accounts. But Paul would say, I've learned to be content whether I was in need or I had plenty. What I found was that in Christ, I can do all things because his strength is what strengthens me. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So when we seek first his kingdom, we seek Christ above all else and we mature in our trust as stewards 
of the one who gave us everything. Good stewardship is not a secret biblical formula. I'm not going to give you, give 10% here, put 20% there. and no. Good stewardship is about displaying the faithfulness of God to the world for God's glory. That's where our heart needs to be. Are you trusting him this morning? We don't give out of duty. We don't give begrudgingly, but we give cheerfully, generously, because he gave all. There's a name for God in the Old Testament. His name is Jehovah Jireh, our provider. We find that name in a story about Abraham. Abraham was commanded by God to sacrifice his son of promise, Isaac. Abraham knew and had come to believe God to be faithful. And he trusted God in this moment. And he took Isaac, his son, to the mountaintop, tied him to the altar, and was ready to sacrifice Isaac. And at that moment that he was ready to sacrifice his son Isaac, God called out to him and told him not to harm him. And God provided a substitute sacrifice. There in the thicket was the ram. So Abraham freed Isaac and sacrificed the ram in his place. Can I tell you that before you give and can become a good steward, you must first trust in Jesus, who is God's provision and your substitute on the cross. If you're stuck in a world thinking that all you have is yours, it's not. You can confess that sin this morning and acknowledge God as your provider by first believing in Jesus Christ, the provision for your sin. Friend, God loves you with an everlasting love. He offers you today the greatest gift ever, the forgiveness of your sin and a new life with salvation in Jesus Christ. If you will just repent of that sin and turn and trust him. That's the good news. The good news is, is that it does not depend on how much you put in the offering plate. Never does it ever depend on that. It depends on what you will do with Jesus. God's provision for you. Because you can't give enough to earn your way. You'll not outgive God because he gave it all on the cross for you.